Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air again. And you know, one thing I was really impressed with was that um, after the uh, intro from a couple of nights back to the uh, new book series we're doing on the wreck of the Carl D. Bradley, A True Story of Loss, Survival, and Rescue at Sea by Michael Schumacher, I was very impressed to see just how many people are interested in this series. But then again, all of you seem to have been interested, not just been interested, but have taken significant interest in all of the book series discussions that um, that, have, that I have uh, gone about discussing since uh, June of last year. So what that means for me is that um, not only do I have good faithful listeners, but I have people who are not only enthused about history, but want to learn more about an, an assortment of topics that they either knew information about before, but didn't know more about those subjects until, um, until say, either recent months or within a year's time, especially for those of you who have been following me since I uh, first began, but also the first book being that I did being uh, Dan Abrams's uh, John Adams Under Fire, The Boston Massacre Trials. So I saw where 30, I've gotten 38 um, plays from the um, introduction to the wreck of the uh, Carl D. Bradley, and I'm very pleased. Um, it's not so much that I'm pleased to know how many plays I've gotten so far from the introduction, but I'm just pleased to know that there are people out there whom are interested in learning more about shipwrecks that uh, perhaps may not have gotten the same fame and recognition like the Lusitania or the Titanic. Of course, you know, when we think of shipwrecks, we tend to think of them as happening out on the um, Atlantic Ocean, Pacific Ocean, or um, the Indian Ocean. Um, the only reason I say that is because, you know, when we think of oceans, we think of, you know, the major oceans, you know, ships crossing, you know, thousands of miles from Europe um, to um, North America. But we do forget that there were um, a plethora of shipwrecks along the Great Lakes, and for those of you who were with me last year when we uh, discussed Michael Schumacher's um, The Mighty Fitz, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, um, that uh, ship, that ship's um, legacy still lives on in large part because of the um, song that Gordon Lightfoot wrote a year later after the ship sank. The ship sank in 1975, November 10th, 1975, I should say, but Gordon Lightfoot wrote a song um, after the start of 1976 called The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which not only inspired to keep the Fitzgerald's legacy alive, but that of other shipwrecks that um, resulted in um, the loss of life on the Great Lakes waters before 1975. And, you know, the Carl D. Bradley obviously... This um, tragedy happened in 1958. Not trying to give a whole lot of stuff away, but in the years after the Bradley sank, and then when the Fitzgerald sank in 1975, Gordon Lightfoot's song did help um, spur interest, even more interest in the uh, wreck of the Carl D. Bradley, as well as um, interest amongst um historians with the uh, Daniel J. Morrell, which sank in 1966. So the Fitzgerald stands out as being the most, um, 
what do you call it, the most uh, recognized of modern-day shipwrecks along the Great Lakes, not so much that it, because the ship sank in 1975, but really the uh, song that Gordon Lightfoot did and the uh, research that has been done over the years. So for those of you who are new to my uh, podcast series um, discussions, uh, check out uh, from the vault uh, from last year's um, discussion uh, book series of Michael Schumacher, who is also the author to the wreck of the Carl D. Bradley, but Michael Schumacher's uh, The Mighty Fitz, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. So let's get on with uh, this uh, podcast episode uh, for this uh, segment. What we're going to be discussing about here is a, a timeline, a timeline of events that um, lead up to November 18th of 1958, but we're going to learn about um, a greater history of the Bradley. I can tell you this much, the Bradley was a um, unique ship for its time. And it was a unique ship in that, um, you know, once a ship gets on a roll, sometimes you have to ask yourself, is what could stop the ship? So let's find out a little bit more as to um, why the ship has such a good reputation and what makes her stand out from being totally different from other ships who, um, who uh, navigate the waters of the Great Lakes. So our lead-off uh, question for this discussion is going to be the following. How many crewmen make up the Carl D. Bradley? How many crewmen do you all think make up the ship? Is it 30? Is it 25? Is it 40? Or is it 35? So your choices, choice A is 30, choice B, 25, choice C, 40, Choice D, 35. The answer is choice D, 35. That's a lot of uh, men aboard a uh, limestone carrier. Now, I know uh, from the previous night when I uh, discussed the uh, introduction, I had said that the uh, carrier itself was 623, that it was 623 feet long. Well, um, I do apologize that I got my miscalculation, that I got my calculations wrong. Not by much, though. It turns out that this um, freighter, limestone carrier freighter, is was 638 feet long. So there's only about a 15 feet um, differential. So for these 35 men who make up the um, the entire crew of the Carl D. Bradley, none of these men are aware by evening, by evening time, November 18th, 1958 that the Bradley will succumb to the bottom of Lake Michigan. You know, don't we all want a better ending? I mean, I'm not trying to give this away, folks, but the reality is that the title of this book should tell us something right here, that it's a true story of loss, survival, rescue at sea. So it, it basically, basically encompasses three in one. Some people will survive, others won't. There will be rescue attempts. But is it fair to say that, not, for one, nothing is ever certain along the Great Lakes waters come November? Absolutely, especially when the skies of November turn gloomy, as Gordon Lightfoot 
said in his uh, song, uh, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. But none of these 35 men are aware that by evening, that the most unpredictable thing that could happen will in fact happen. It's just a matter of a short amount of time. But we also have to keep in mind that storms themselves don't happen over, it, they just don't happen in the blink of an eye. When I'm on the air again with you all next, we will talk a little bit more about this storm that will um, sadly uh, seal the Bradley's fate. But at one time, though, folks, the Carl D. Bradley, being a 638-foot limestone carrier, was the largest vessel on the Great Lakes. And this also includes her being the finest within the Bradley Transportation Company's fleet. Is it fair to say that she might have been considered to be the flagship of, her, um, of the company's fleet? Absolutely. The flagship meaning the hallmark ship, the signature. Well, by 5 o'clock, or rather by 5 p.m. on November 18th, the Carl D. Bradley is sailing smoothly as it's journeying northward along the Wisconsin coastline en route to its destination. Okay, it's sailing smoothly, as smoothly as it can, along the Wisconsin coastline. Is it fair to say that maybe by 5 o'clock that the crew knows of the change in weather? Yes, they do. But to them change in weather like this is just nothing new. For many of these men, they have spent almost maybe 30 years at best, depending on their ages. Some of these men have spent it, they've spent their lifetimes. They've seen highs and lows come. They've seen uh, people, you know, they've been witnesses to survival from past wrecks on other boats before joining the Bradley. They have known of other men whom survived the improbable. So this is nothing new. In many ways, this is a situation where not only is it survival of the fittest, but where being out on the waters in the month of November, it's a test. It's an ultimatum that separates boys from men. So the destination that the Carl Bradley is en route to is none other than Rogers City, Michigan. Now what a coincidence is that? Darkness has already set in by 5 o'clock, but the wind speed itself has become all the more intense over the past hour. That's just the beginning, folks. Besides the wind speed intensity, or rather the intensity of the wind speed itself that has picked up, there are other elements that will have to be taken into consideration, like sea spray. Okay, I'm not talking hairspray, folks, but sea spray. Sea spray is another, uh, it's a description that can be best described as aerosol particles f that form from uh, ocean that can um, attack crewmen on deck. In other words, without any advanced warning, uh, the water can just um, come out of nowhere and perhaps knock a crew person, a crewman or two down to the ground. That's how lethal these... Um, these, um, I guess you would call them like not just waves, but um, what do you call it? Uh, spurts of um, or spouts of um, 
seawater that can just uh, attack you out of nowhere. And as I said earlier, the Bradley crewmen, or the crewmen of the Bradley, are no strangers to stormy weather on the Great Lakes. Especially when huge waves break underneath the ship. That sounds scary, folks. I mean, to me, when I first read this, it did sound a bit um, frightening, you know, knowing that, okay, it's one thing for a huge wave to pop up in front of you, but, but if the wave breaks underneath your ship and you have no control over that, it can result into what's called twisting and lifting. You know, when I think of twisting, I think of, you know, an object going in one direction, then in the other. There's no set course. But when a ship twists and lifts, it makes long-term stability, or rather safety, a greater cause for concern. In other words, the internal structure of the ship is has potential to become compromised. Okay, here's a question for you all. I don't expect any of you all to know this one, and that's fine. I won't hold it against you, but it is worth pointing out. Uh, who is Roland Bryan? I didn't know anything about him until I read the book, but that's okay. Roland Bryan is the captain of the Carl D. Bradley. As a matter of fact, by 1958, he has uh, accomplished a, a good amount. He has served on the Bradley fleet for 17 years, and he has been captain of the Carl D. Bradley since 1954. And by 1958, Roland Bryan has had nearly 38 years of sailing. What I find interesting about him is that he is originally from uh, Collingwood, Ontario in uh, Canada. However, he, um, he was born either in the year 1905 or 1906, so by the time 1958 comes around, he's in his early 50s. He's not married, but during the off-season, that is when the shipping season is not, um, when it's not, um, when, when the shipping season's not going on, um, he makes his home in a, in a place in New York State called, uh, named uh, Loudonville. Um, I looked up uh, Loudonville some time back just to see where that was uh, located, and it's located um, on the outskirts of Albany, uh, being the capital. As a matter of fact, it's located somewhere not probably not too far from Onkyota or uh, Cooperstown. Um, so, yes, so he he makes his home during the off season in uh, Loudonville. Now, as for this um, as for this particular voyage, I can tell you starting out that Roland Bryan had multiple options for steering the Bradley on its course from Gary, Indiana, which is in northwest Indiana, to Rogers City, Michigan, even as the winds from the southwest were gusting from 25 to 35 miles an hour. Well, let's find out what some of these options are. But before we talk about the options, I, I think it's worth noting this. Although Captain Bryan already has the ship within 5 to 12 miles of Wisconsin's shore. And the reason he has the about 5 to 12 miles from the shore, that is Wisconsin shore, it's because the closer he is to shore, he's not he may not be super close, say if he's 12 miles, but he's close enough to the shoreline 
so that the waves themselves will not have much room for strengthening. In other words, the further he gets away from Wisconsin's shore, the greater the likelihood that um, should he um, encounter a storm, the greater the likelihood that the waves will strengthen to where they could significantly, significantly damage his ship. So by being closer to the shoreline, he knows that the chances could be significantly reduced. That doesn't mean that there still could be a three to five percent chance that something could still go wrong, but by getting closer to the shoreline, uh, he knows that he has uh, probably reduced his chances of getting hit by a what we might think of as a rogue wave um, to a significant um, he has significantly reduced those chances. But on the other hand, though, um, Captain Bryan could have navigated the Bradley closer to the Michigan side of Lake Michigan. If he had done this, what could he have done differently? He could have saved on some time. However, there is a setback here. If he had... Um, navigated the Bradley closer to the Michigan side of Lake Michigan, he could have uh, run the risk of um, exposure. That He could have uh, run the risk of um, significantly exposing his ship to heavier seas. So there's always a pro and a con to any situation, even if you are in the present moment. Another option, to me, this would have been the safest one, the other option would have been to take the ship into a harbor and wait out the storm. By taking it to a harbor, you have pretty much eliminated all chances of facing the unexpected. You know, it's one thing for a captain to do that, but then, but then, then again at the same time, captains themselves, in some instances, sadly, they will get frowned upon for doing this. So that leads me to my next question for you all, my fellow listeners. Is Captain Roland Bryan the type who prefers dropping anchor and waiting out a storm? The answer is no. He firmly believes in keeping priorities straight by delivering cargo on schedule. No delays. Now, I'm sure many of you are thinking, well, can't the cargo be replaced? You know, a human life can't be replaced. That I could agree with you all on. I thought this, the same thing too, but one of the things I've learned, especially not only from having read uh, Michael Schumacher's uh, The Wreck of the, um, the about the uh, Mighty Fitz, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, but the same applied even to The Wreck of the Carl D. Bradley book. While safety is an important concern to shipping company officials, not just with Bradley Transportation Company, uh, but the same for any other, we could say the same for any other shipping uh, transportation company, but, but captains whom are fearful more often when weather becomes an issue can pose problems to officials above them. So let me repeat that again, folks. While safety is an important concern to shipping company officials, captains whom are fearful more often when weather becomes an issue can pose problems to officials above them. What that basically just means is that if you have captains who are timid, 
that is, of course, when I think of the word timid, I think of, you know, someone, you know, being shy, uh, fearful, afraid. And, that, you know, that's not all bad. But if you have a captain who is uh, very fearful, then the more fearful the captain becomes, then the greater the likelihood that the captain can lose the trust of his crewmen. The crewmen don't feel safe with the captain. They don't feel that the captain has the uh, capability of being able to um, work under pressure to where he will not only be able to ensure that his crew will be safe in the event of um, going getting through a storm that comes out of nowhere. You know, yes, you know, we could be playing with safety for the wrong reasons, but there are times when you need a captain who's gonna who's not going to be afraid to uh, get out of his uh, comfort zone or get out of his shell to where he can take his a game to another level and be able to do something differently to where the crew will still have faith in him you know it's not just a captain commanding his ship he's got to the crew below him all have a part to play too and the only way that the crew, that the captain and the crew can make their voyages successful is by working together as a team, even under the most adverse of conditions along the waters. So, yes, captains whom are fearful, more often when it comes to weather, are sadly the ones that can, that, um, can pose problems to officials above them. And we have to keep in mind, too, that um, people on the docks aren't just sitting around all day waiting for cargo to come. If it, if it needs to be there by a definitive time, they're not going to be wasting around, uh, wasting for time. In other words, if the cargo has to be delivered by 12 o'clock, you better make sure you can find every way there is possible to get it to the port, whether it's Gary, Indiana, Toledo, Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio. You better make sure you have a way to get it there, because if you can't, then your replacement won't be far away. So the bottom line is you either deliver the cargo on time or the, or the, um, the transportation company will find another vessel within its company who can become that flagship, um, the signature flagship uh, vessel that will be able to deliver on its promises unlike the other one that couldn't. So was the Bradley's boat or I should say vessel run to Gary, Indiana, the day before, being November 17th, to have been the Bradley's last trip for the 1958 season. Okay, folks, the day before, November 17th, the Bradley made a run to Gary, Indiana. So was it to have been that, to have been her last trip for the 1958 season? The answer is yes. The original plan after completing trip southward to Gary was for Captain Bryan to take the vessel to Manitowoc, Wisconsin. Uh, Manitowoc is outside of Sheboygan, um, in case any of you all wanted to know where that was located. And uh, Sheboygan is north of, um, of Milwaukee. And I know this uh, because I have a sister who lives outside of uh, Milwaukee in uh, Brookfield. And I have, um, while I haven't been to Sheboygan, there is a place... Uh, on, not far from Sheboygan called Cedarburg. Uh, it's a small um, village slash town, but it's a great place to go. So if any of y'all are, you know, looking for 
looking to travel to Wisconsin, I strongly recommend visiting Cedarburg. There's a lot of great shops there. Um, it, it's a great place. But then again, Wisconsin's a nice state as well, too. But yes, Captain Brian was to take the vessel to uh, Manitowoc, to the Manitowoc, Wisconsin shipyard facility, where the Bradley would undergo major repairs and upgrades. This also included installing a new $800,000 cargo hold where all cargo got stored. Is it fair to say, folks, that the Bradley is in dire need of an extreme makeover? Based upon the fact that she needs a new $800,000 cargo hold where all cargo will get stored, yeah, if you need, it, if you need um, major repairs like an 800000 like having the installation of a new cargo hold that will cost you, you know, about $800,000. Yeah, I would say it's definitely time for um, a makeover. However, folks, um, I don't have good news to report here. Without any advance notifications, the, Brad the Bradley Transportation Company assigned Captain Brian and his crew to another trip which will take the Carl D. Bradley back to Rogers City, Michigan for another shipment of stone. Well, I'm sure some of you are, are now wondering, didn't the, didn't the Bradley Transportation Company understand that this ship needs repairs? And it sounds like these repairs are urgent. And the longer these repairs wait, or the longer the, the uh, issues go unnoticed, isn't it fair to say that maybe the ship has um, potential um to encounter something that could uh, perhaps doom, perhaps lead to a complete doom. I, anything's possible. But had 1958 been a good shipping season for the Bradley? No. Uh, for starters, the steel industry had suffered setbacks of its own to where um, not all uh, Bradley boats were needed. So here is a, a good example of an imbalance between supply and demand. So given that not all the Bradley boats were needed, the Bradley herself spent more time docked up, forcing her own crewmen to find uh, work on other boats. This is a um, this would be a tough time, you know, if you're a, you know if you work, regardless of whether you're married or, or single. Or if you are married, but, you know, if you don't have children, you've got to find a way to make ends meet. And for many of these men who are married with a family, yeah. I mean, 43 trips seems like a lot, folks, but we have to keep in mind that many of these freighters, they're making about maybe close to 80 trips as the shipping season is coming to a near end. Uh, they are making well over 50 trips. Uh, think about this. I mean, freighters are going from one lake to another, and not just from one lake to another, they're going to, to ports, um, like I mentioned earlier, to Cleveland, Toledo, uh, Chicago, um, Green Bay, um, even Milwaukee. Um, you're going up into um, Cedarville, Michigan. You're going to Gary, Indiana. I mean, the list goes on and on, but uh, or Detroit, Michigan, for that matter. So, the bottom line is is that there are plenty of, um, what do you call it, port stations or what we might think of as hubs where ships can deliver the cargo to these facilities 
and then you know they would be delivered by land you know via truck to the uh, facilities that are in need of the goods so prior to november 17th and 18th of 1958 the bradley as i said had made only 43 round trips during the 1958 shipping season so it's fair to say that this is probably that the ship itself has experienced the lowest of lows so right now we're going to focus on a little bit of her past because in order to understand her present day situation we've got to learn more about her past how she evolved how she was able to go about becoming um, a phenomenal ship for her time exactly just how old is the carl d bradley by 1958 is she 35 years old is she 40 or is she just over 30 years? The answer is choice C. She's just over 30 years. She's probably about 31, 32 years of age. I do know that um, in 1926, that would, be, that would be the official year which construction first began on the Bradley in Lorraine, Ohio. Uh, for those of you who don't know where Lorraine is, that's outside of uh, Cleveland. Um, and of course... We all know in Ohio, for example, that Columbus is in central Ohio. We know in southwest Ohio, Cincinnati. Northwest Ohio, we know there's Toledo. And in northeast Ohio, it's Cleveland. So the Bradley was built, or rather designed, for a lifetime of heavy lifting. Well, when I think of heavy lifting, we're talking about thousands and thousands of tons of uh, cargo. We're not talking a thousand tons, folks. We are talking well, well above 5,000 tons. I'll get to some numbers here momentarily. But come July 28, 1927, the Bradley officially arrives for the first time into the port of Calcite Harbor, where she's greeted by people, spectators from all walks of life, and who else is there to greet her? How about Mr. Carl D. Bradley himself? He is the CEO of Bradley Transportation Company. So, that, so folks, that's how the ship gets its name, from none, none other than Mr. Carl D. Bradley, who is the CEO of Bradley Transportation Company. On July 28th of 1927, given that the uh, Bradley arrives uh, for the first time into the port of Calcite Harbor, Spectators are, are, are allowed to tour the inside of the boat. There are individual rooms for captain, for the captain, for mates, the chief steward, engine room officers, including dormitory-style rooms for all, all other ranked crewmen. So is it fair to say that the entire crew is being looked after in terms of you know, proper um, lodging inside this ship? Absolutely. Um, sometimes it's easy to think that the only people who have the rooms are the captain and the first and second mates, those who are in that inner circle with the captain. No, um, it turns out that, um, you know, I've got to give Bradley Transportation Company a lot of credit here. They are really looking after their the uh, crewmen who uh, go above and beyond to... Um, you know, work on the waters, not just work on the waters, but go about um, 
doing the line of work that that perhaps a lot of other people wouldn't want to do. After all, somebody's got to do this work. Not just one person, a whole crew of people have to do this stuff. What was significant about August 3rd, 1927? Interesting enough, August 3rd, 1927. So we know on July 28th, the Bradley arrived into the port of Calcite Harbor. So really, we're looking about six days or close to a week's difference here. I can tell you what's significant about August 3rd, 1927. The Bradley completed her first voyage. Can you believe that, folks? She's already completed her first voyage, and she set a record on her first voyage. She hauled 16,562 tons of limestone from the port of Calcite to Gary, Indiana. To me, that sounds like a Guinness Book of World Records right there in terms of hauling um, cargo per tonnage. However, this tonnage record of 16,562 tons of limestone lasted only a week. Come the following week, the Bradley hauled 17,030 tons. This ship's on a roll, folks. I mean, this ship isn't afraid to take chances. Her crew isn't afraid to, um, to take risks. I mean, there's nothing wrong with taking risks, but could there be consequences down the road? Sure. Come 1928, another record was set that the Bradley hauled 18,113 tons, a record that would stand 13 years. And yes, it is fair to say that this ship is pretty much unstoppable. I don't know if uh, Mr. Bradley or any other um, members high up in the uh, corporate ranks with Bradley Transportation Company have deemed her unsinkable, of course, when I hear that phrase, unsinkable, I always think of the Titanic and how uh, Mr. Ismay and um, <laughs> Captain Smith and other high-ranking officials of the White Star Line dubbed her as unsinkable. I mean, you know, no matter what was nearby that could have posed a danger, somehow the ship would just avoid it. Well, we all know that wasn't the case. And the consequences were so bad that it sadly resulted in 1,500 innocent people's lives lost at sea. Given by 1958, with the Bradley just over 30 years old, wouldn't it be fair to say she has taken a se severe beating? Yes. Especially considering how much loading and unloading of cargo took place that led to uneven distributions, where the Bradley herself had bent and twisted in storms. Bending and twisting, folks? Which, over time, caused her hull being the main body of the ship to weaken. You know, there's only so much, um, so much a ship can take. And, you know, it's one thing to want to set records. It's another thing to want to utilize every every what do you call it space there is in your cargo hold to um, to store the cargo but we have to keep in mind too folks that car there there's a right way of loading cargo and then there is a wrong way of doing it and if you don't load the cargo properly it's not like packing a suitcase folks it's not like just packing your car um, when I read uh, Schumacher's uh, 
the Mighty Fitz, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. I mean, it was very well described about how the taconite pellets were loaded into the um, cargo hold. So there is a process, folks, that we have to keep in mind about how cargo is to be loaded on these uh, ships, or rather these freighters, that navigate the waters of the Great Lakes. But if the loading process is not done right, then yes, the, the cargo hold will become compromised over time to where um, the hull, not just the cargo hold, but the hull being the ship's uh, main, the main body of the ship will be uh, jeopardized. Now, right before 1958, uh, two years earlier on April the 3rd of 1956, the Bradley collided in the St. Clair River with a Canadian vessel resulting in some damages. But she received a quick patch-up, resulting in her being uh, right back out on the water in no time. Well, that's good to know. Um, however, um, you know, 1958, we've already established, has not been the best year for the Bradley. You know, she's only been out on the water. She's only made about 43 trips. That's not a high number by uh, shipping official standards. The Bradley... Um, the steel industry has uh, suffered a, a, a really bad down year to where they don't need all of the Bradley's um, boats to transport goods. So what happened more than once to the Bradley in 1958 prior to November? She struck bottom, or rather grounded twice near Cedarville, Michigan, being up in the uh, upper peninsula of that state, resulting in one situation where a 14-inch crack damaged a good part of her hull, or rather um, a, a hull plate, but it was significant enough to where um, it was just one of those things that could go that could not go unnoticed. Sadly, neither one of these grounding incidents that took place got reported to the Coast Guard. If you don't report an incident to the Coast Guard, no matter how big or small, is it fair to say that that is a violation of policy? Yes, it is. But it, what I find ironic is that despite the fact that the Bradley crewmen did not report the grounding incident to the Coast Guard, the Coast Guard still did inspect the Bradley twice during the 58, 1958 season. Um, the first one, well... The first one happened at the start of the year, but what's ironic about the second one was that the second inspection happened on October 30th, 18 days before the inevitable happened. Um, the inspectors observed uh, the Bradley crewmen performing lifeboat and fire drills. Okay, so it's good to know that the that the crewmen are performing their basic um, essential uh, tasks on knowing what they, how they are to go about responding um, to an unexpected event, such as a, um, a an internal fire within the uh, ship, and how to go about getting people out of harm's way by performing the necessary lifeboat drills. But the spring inspection uh, was, was just as interesting to learn about here because it actually began on January 30th. Of course, when I think of January, I think of winter. But at the same time, the Coast Guard has their own um, scheduling uh, or s scheduling season of how they go about inspecting boats before these uh, freighters are allowed to go back out on the water. 
So the spring inspection began January 30th of uh, 1958 and would be and got completed between April 16th and 17th. Uh, the big repair in the off season was to replace worn out rivets and plating. Rivets, you know, when I think of rivets, the first time I learned about rivets was uh, years ago when learning about the Titanic, uh, many years ago. But why I mention that is because um, the Titanic, not to get off track, was uh, built of a uh, lower quality, it was built of lower quality steel, and those rivets were not um, suited to handle the kind of steel that was used to build the ship, and so when the ship struck the iceberg, the rivets um, basically lost their uh, durability. That's just my 101 explanation of it, but these uh, rivets aboard the Bradley are in dire need of repair because, um, you know, once a rivet gets out of line, you know, you don't know what that could entail long term. Even the smallest mishaps, folks, even to a 638 foot limestone carrier, the smallest mishaps have just as grave of consequences like a major mishap would. Carl D. Bradley, um, Bradley Transportation Company's signature ship often got far more attention and care versus her sister ships. The Bradley carried uh, corporate officials and other noteworthy people in the staterooms. Okay, but, you know, okay, if this ship is getting more attention than her sister ships, wouldn't it be fair to say that the officials should have said, hey, look, we know that this has been a down year for you guys. Um, we're going to, um, we're going to, um, well, you know, I don't know if it even would be right to say this. What if they had said to the Bradley crew, you all need to, to uh, go straight to um, to, uh, Shibor, uh, to uh, Manitowoc and we'll have another ship do this assignment? I hate to say this, but if another ship had done that assignment, who's to say that that ship would have come out alive from this um, potential storm? So it doesn't make it right that, that the Bradley chose to go back out on the waters, but at the same time, when you become desperate to make an extra buck and you are in desperate need of making extra money to make ends meet, especially when you've had a real off-season like the Bradley has had in 1958, there's a lot of, um, a lot of emotions, a lot of um, uncertainty, but there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of, uh, what I, I don't know if I'd say anxiety, there's just a lot of um, instability going on through people's minds, not knowing that, hey, if we don't get this one last run in, are we going to be kicking ourselves that we didn't do it? It's like that old saying, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, if you don't. I mean, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, of um, it's like, you know, it's, it's like gambling, you're taking risks that are either going to benefit you or they will, you know, or they won't. Was the Bradley uh, constructed with less flexible metal, meaning that the metal itself became more brittle? Yes, she was. Um, the metal she was constructed with had a, had a lower quality and it was more vulnerable to elements that is, the forces of Mother Nature on the waters. So in other words, when the waves 
hit the ship from underneath and it led to that bending and twisting. Yeah, that metal, it's only a matter of time before that metal could just completely break to where the ship could uh, run aground. It could, it could um, be so badly damaged to where she's no longer salvageable. However, despite the fact that the Bradley was constructed with less flexible metal, there's something else that uh, captains and their crew have to be depended upon to get them through the darkest of moments on the water. What do you think that would be? Is it something that is internal? Is it something that's uh, personal? Yes, it's both internal and personal. How about faith? Faith along the waters, being that of the Great Lakes waters, depends upon a boat's durability. But not just a boat's durability, but how about the captain and the crewmen working together to perform their necessary tasks in times of adversity on the water, meaning that you're going up against uh, bad weather. And it's all up to you all as a crew on how you're going to work together. Because if you don't work together and you let fear take in to the, I mean, fear set in, then fear itself will, uh, will hamper your ability, not only as an individual, but, um, but to work, um, but to work successfully under pressure and getting through the, um, the roughest, uh, moments of, uh, what's left on your voyage. And we're not just talking, we're not talking a leisure voyage, folks, but voyage to the next uh, port destination where you've got the goods to, um, to drop off. After dropping off Limestone in Gary, Indiana, is the Bradley running light or moderately? I, I know that seems like a, a, an odd question to ask. Is the Bradley running light or moderately? Well, what do I mean exactly when I say running light? I learned this when I read the book. And I reminded myself of it again going into this uh, podcast. But running light means that the Bradley, or any ship for that matter, who is running light along Great Lakes waters is sailing without cargo. Well, if you're sailing without cargo, does that mean that, um, does it mean necessarily that you're safe? It could mean that you are safe on one hand. But if you're going into a storm, then the storm itself will pose greater problems. So, how can um, the Bradley go about modifying their situation knowing that they, that they are now running light? In other words, they've dropped off the limestone in Gary, Indiana. So, they don't have a lot of cargo um, underneath to, um, to perhaps uh, keep the um, ship uh, evenly, not just evenly balanced, but just running evenly um, as she is sailing along uh, Lake Michigan's uh, waters. Well, first mate, Elmer Fleming, and he's, his name's going to be talked about quite a bit, so let's, um, let's keep him in mind now that, we've, um, now that we're starting to learn about him. Uh, first mate, Elmer Fleming, goes about supervising the ballasting procedures to the Bradley side and aft tanks. I'm sure some of you have heard of the term ballast, and I'm sure others have not. So for those of you who, well, I'll just put it this way. For whether you've learned about the term ballast or you haven't, um, here's some more information on that term. Ballast is, based, is a term for where 
uh, weight is being added. And it's not just weight, but it's water that's being added. It, the, ex, the water that's being added into the uh, ship's uh, ballast tanks helps lower the ship into the water that gives the ship um, buoyancy. That is, it's able to float um, smoothly or properly, but in this case, the, it helps the ballast, uh, being the lake water, helps um, lower the ship into the water that helps gives, give it stability, preventing the ship from becoming uneven where when sailing without cargo. So you've got to find a way to uh, add, in this case, add water that will help lower the ship into the water that prevents it from becoming uneven. If, if you don't add, um, add any uh, extra ballast or lake water to the ship, then the greater the likelihood that the ship itself will become uneven to where uh, something uh, dangerous along the water will happen that could, you know, maybe not only result in major fractures or damages to the uh, ship internally and externally, but perhaps um, jeopardize the safety of the crew as a whole. Uh, despite first mate, um, well, before I get to this last part here, uh, the aft, which is spelled A-F-T, that is the back or the stern section to a ship. So when we think of ships, th when you think of the front, we think of the bow. When we think of the stern, it's the back. Despite uh, first mate Elmer Fleming's supervision assignments having taken place, Captain Roland Bryan now realizes just how severe this storm is becoming, given that it's not an average Great Lakes storm. So no matter what, um, you know, yes, we certainly can um, applaud what Elmer Fleming has done. I mean, after all, he is doing his job. I mean, he knows, like everybody else on the crew, that they can't control Mother Nature, but they can certainly do whatever is in their power to um, modify anything that has the potential of becoming so catastrophic or so severe to where if something does happen that they would hope that if any damage were to happen that it would be minimal versus moderate to severe. But even Captain, it, I would like to say that for Captain Roland Bryan, yes, I know he is very um, adamant on del in delivering cargo on time. You know, some of us might think that this guy's quite a risk taker to where he's not interested in safety. Well, I believe that he is concerned about safety, but at the same time, he also can't afford to be one of those timid captains who who becomes so fearful that of um, any inclement weather that stands in his way to where the crewmen will lose respect in him. I mean, you got to take into consideration, this man has spent 30, the last 38 years of his life out on the water. I mean, he's worked his way up throughout the ranks. You know, being, becoming captain isn't something that just happens overnight. I mean, he is the captain of the Carl D. Bradley. I mean, he's been captain of the ship for four years, and it's fair to say that anybody who works for the Bradley Transportation Company, even on any of the other ships, while, yes, they would probably take pride in those... Uh, in, any one of the other eight ships that make up this uh, company's fleet, I'm sure some of them would give anything in the world to be on the Bradley. I mean, the Bradley, in their eyes, is the granddaddy of them all. They just can't do anything wrong. 
but Captain Roland Bryan now knows that he's in for a different fight, and that is a fight involving Mother Nature and realizing that this is not an average Great Lakes storm. So when I'm on the air again with you all next, we're going to learn more about this storm and how it evolved, and we'll uh, also learn about some other things that should be of uh, noteworthy importance. Well, thank you again, as always, uh, for listening. Um, continue to um, listen to what I have to um, share with you all, but not just continue to listen to it, um, spread the word out. And you all are already doing that, but continue to do it because the more people I, um, I'm able to um, see um, that are listening and all, it just makes me uh, realize that there are people out there who care about history. Yes, history's not pretty, but maybe it wasn't intended to be that way. But at the same time, even learning about shipwrecks that didn't happen on the Atlantic Ocean and say happened on the Great Lakes, like the Carl D. Bradley, they are worth learning about because even Great Lakes shipwrecks have stories to tell. After all, Gordon Lightfoot said it right in the wreck of the, fifth, the Edmund Fitzgerald, his song, that uh, Superior never gives up her dead. In other words, when the Edmund Fitzgerald sank in 1975, the whole crew went down. A 729-foot freighter that that at one time was the it uh, sur it would surpass the Bradley in terms of being the longest ship, the largest ship on the Great Lakes. It was probably fair to say the Titanic of the Great Lakes, but when the when the Fitzgerald sank years later. People had to be reminded that even in the month of November, even as the skies turn gloomy, Superior doesn't give up her dead, and and no matter what we as humans try to do in terms of advancing our technology, Mother Nature will still always find a way to prevail. So we must keep in mind that this is a story not only about loss, survival, and rescue, but it's also a story of how Mother Nature's elements still have a way of superseding all human progress. Thank you again, as always, for listening, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon with all of you, my uh, faithful 101 podcast listeners. Take care for now and stay safe.